So we've been going through this series, uh, B, unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, and the overarching theme has been we are called to be different. It's been a couple weeks because uh, our last in-person streaming service that we had was three weeks ago, because then the following week, two weeks ago, we had nobody in house, except for like three people. Everybody else, we just encouraged you to stay home because we got hit with that big snowstorm. Then last week, we couldn't stream because we had special guests, and for their protection, we couldn't, we had to go all covert and sneaky. So it's our first service back to quote-unquote normal. Um, so I wanted to recap kind of what we've been going through. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' teaching on prayer and being intentional by saying not the Lord's prayer. Yes, it's the prayer that the Lord taught us. But I suggested two weeks ago that maybe instead of praying it word for word exactly the way it was given to us, that what Jesus was giving us was a form to follow. And it was broken up into five parts. To start off with worship, God, your name, be honored as holy above all other names. Second part was bringing our will into alignment with God's God. Your will be done on earth. Not my will, not my kingdom, not my way, your way. Because your way is perfect, your will is perfect, and I want to come into alignment with what you want to accomplish on earth. The third part was uh, learning about relying on God to meet our needs. God, give us the food that we need today. And part of that being, God, maybe teach us to be content with what you've, been give, what you've given us. Because it's so easy for us to pursue other things regardless of we, whether we have the money or not to live outside of our means. We're going to talk about that a little bit today uh, with the message, so I won't get into that too much. The fourth part was, <laughs> God, forgive us as we forgive others. The humility to, that when we come to God, we wouldn't even think about asking for forgiveness for ourselves until we had forgiven those who've hurt us because we are so overwhelmed, so inundated with how much God has forgiven us, how much he's loved us, that we can't help but to forgive those who have hurt us. So they come first, and then we come to God and say, God, forgive me. And the last part was, God, give me the strength, because I'm going to be tempted. Temptation's going to come my way. Trials are going to come my way. I'm going to be tempted to do things that dishonor you and bring shame to your name. God, give me the strength to not succumb. Give me the strength to overcome these things. Um, and don't let me give in to the evil one. And so my, uh, my encouragement was to take the week and do, at some point during the week, uh, intentionally pray through each of those sections. To intentionally pray through, not just word for word, but to follow that form, because lots of biblical authors follow it. So, pop quiz, everyone, pressure's on. Did anybody actually do it? You're all so humble. Like, no, Matt, I don't want to draw attention to myself. Of course I did it, but... If you need a refresher, you can go back and watch the message and get all those steps so that you can um, give her a try. I do encourage you to pray that way at least once or twice a week just to kind of refocus ourselves because it's so easy for prayer to become all about me when really it's meant to be an opportunity to connect with our Heavenly Father, to get our eyes off of us and get our eyes onto Him. And so this week, we're diving into the next part, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. If you got your physical Bible, want to turn there. As a segue, though, I need to unpack an important literary term so that we kind of 
prepare ourselves for a portion of this section. Uh, and the best way I could do this was to get, use a good old Saskatchewan phrase. Uh, I bleed green. Pop quiz, what does that mean? Do I literally have green ooze flowing through my veins? What does it mean? I'm a Ryder fan. I'm a diehard Ryder fan. And in Saskatchewan and in most of Canada, they understand that us psychos who cheer for the Riders, whether they're good or not, use this phrase. I am committed. I am full. But you say that to anyone outside of Canada. Most of the states would probably get it too. Um, say that to anyone outside of Canada. Or more importantly, you could even say it in Canada, but say it at like 100 years down the road. Because maybe the, the riders will survive. They're, they'll be eternal. But everybody else will be long gone. But you take that phrase outside of our culture, outside of our era, and somebody reads it and says, this, this guy says he bleeds green. Let's find him and figure out why. Right? That is a weird thing to say. That's called an idiom. It's a cultural phrase that means something other than what the literal words mean. And scripture is full of them. And when we read these idioms and we take them as literal, we miss what the biblical author and the teacher are trying to say. And Jesus is going to use a Jewish idiom in this passage of scripture that we often miss what he is trying to say. Because when we see it at face value, it looks like it doesn't fit with the rest of the passage. But what we're going to see is, in fact, it does. Okay, that's all my preamble. Verse 19, here we go. Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. <coughs> Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Where the your treasures are. When Jesus uses the word treasures, he's talking about two things. That could refer to the physical thing of value that we store up and we want. But treasure can also mean the place where we hold it, right? And so that both fit in the scripture that we just read. Wherever that place is, wherever that stuff is, there your heart will be also, a uh, really important background for this, as Jesus is preaching and teaching to the crowds, um, anybody who know, is the crowd generally a wealthy crowd or a poor crowd? Any guesses? Poor. Very poor. And not North American poor. We're not talking like, I might have to cancel Netflix in order to keep Amazon Prime poor. Okay, we're not talking that. We're talking, I don't remember the last time I could afford to eat poor. We're talking, they may have a house poor. They, they are desolate. They, are, they have nothing. And when you have nothing, it's really easy to get consumed with the things you don't have. Especially when having nothing means, I don't even know if I put food on the table for my family. And so you become consumed with trying to figure out where am I going to find the money to just keep my family alive. 
The same thing happens in our day, not maybe to that degree, but if you have stock, what do you inevitably end up doing if you play the stock game? You become consumed with watching the stock markets. Because you have to know when a good time to buy, you need to know when a good time to sell. And so, so it may not become all-consuming, but it has definitely got your focus. You're definitely keeping an eye on it. Let's say you have real estate. If, you have re- if you're in the real estate game, what do you end up doing? You watch the housing market. Again, because you want to add more. You want to make sure you get the best price. Or if it's really high, you want to make sure that you sell at the best price. So you get the maximum value for the stuff that you have. And what Jesus is saying is that (coughs) the pursuit of money, the pursuit of treasures, that's a risky thing to be pursuing. Because there are so many things working against you. Worldly wealth can be so fleeting. Because we buy the nice car, what, it en- what inevitably ends up happening? The car breaks. It will. Newsflash, nothing lasts forever. A couple of you are like, uh-huh, I know this personally. Right? You buy anything. You invest in anything. You invest in the stock, and inevitably the stock's going to tank. You invest in a house, and inevitably the furnace goes. Right? Like, like you buy, you invest, we can invest so much. And what Jesus is saying is you, well, the really good way to approach life, and especially approach our finances, is to not invest in the things of this world that are going to pass away, but invest them in, in the one sure thing where it never goes away. Pay it forward to eternity. Give it, put it in God's hands. Let God hold on to your treasure because there's nothing that takes it away. It never loses its value with God. It's a call to be generous, to detach from the things of this world, to just be like, you know what? Mm, I have the option of investing in something that's going to last forever or something that's going to fade away. Hmm. course you're not going to work it um but jesus takes it a step further as followers of christ where's our heart supposed to be who does our heart belong to as disciples of jesus belongs to god and god alone and what jesus is saying is that when we start putting our trust in our treasures we start hoarding it start holding on to it what we're essentially doing is we're putting our trust in money over we're putting our trust in God. And we literally just, he just taught us to pray, God, you give us our daily bread. God, you meet my needs. God, I'm going to trust you to be the good father that wor- the word tells me you are. So you're going to put your trust in money or you're going to put your trust in God because I guarantee you one's going to let you down. And we're going to come back to this because then Jesus really takes it a step further with this whole God or money idea. Verse, 20, verse 22. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. When your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? Um, newsflash, back to the whole bleed green thing. Jesus isn't actually talking about eyes here. It's a Jewish idiom. And what the, what the use of the eye was was actually to a reflection of 
your, how you saw finances, how you were with your finances. If you had a good eye, it meant that you were aware of the opportunities to be generous with your money. It meant that you held it open-handedly and you're looking for opportunities to help the poor, to help those in need. A good eye meant you were generous. A bad eye meant that you were stingy, meant that you were jealous. <clears throat> and what Jesus is saying is that when you have a bad eye, when it comes to your finances, when you have an ungodly view of your finances, it blinds you to the opportunities to do good. It starts by blinding you to the opportunities to be generous because it's my money and I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to stockpile it and I'm going to hoard it and nobody's taking it from me. And when you stop being generous with your money, you stop being generous with your time, you stop being generous with your skills, you stop being generous with everything. And what, God, what Jesus is saying is, you, as disciples, whether you have a lot or a little, you need to be generous with everything because every good thing you have is a gift from God. Every good thing you have is a gift from God. Paul says this to Timothy when it comes to uh, finances. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable their trust should be in god who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment tell them to use their money to do good they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others by doing this they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. So, my second question. You have a good eye or you have a bad eye? Do you have a worldly perspective of finances? It's mine. Or do you have a godly perspective that it is a gift from God and I need to be a good steward of it? And as God has so freely given to me, I need to be ready to give to others. Do you have a good eye? Or do you have a bad eye? Verse 24. And this is how Jesus wraps it up. No one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. <coughs> and so to wrap up this teaching on money, he stands before his followers. He stands before the disciples. And I think Jesus today, every time we read this passage, passage is standing before us. And he has two options, just as Moses did before they went into the promised land. This day you will choose. And after the promised land, Joshua stands before the Israelites and he says, Today choose. And so Jesus stands before us, both in-house, online, everywhere. He says, here's your two options. Today you have to choose. On one hand, we have God, because God always comes first. God's always the first option. God comes first in everything. He is preeminent. It's just a big fancy word that he comes first. Um, because you can't serve God in money, because they both demand everything. 
They both demand complete allegiance. They both demand all your time, all your life, everything. You can't serve both. You pick one. On one hand, you have God. What God asks of you is you surrender your time, you surrender your will, you surrender your life. Surrender to his will, surrender to his teaching, surrender to his leading. And what do you get in return? You get to be the absolute best version of yourself that God designed you to be. You will be a better husband. You will be a better wife. Newsflash, those are the only two options. You will be a better parent. You'll be a better worker. You'll just be an all-around better person. Why? Because when we enter into God's presence, He gives us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the kinds of things that there is no law, there's no limit to how much we can express these things. They're so good and unsurpassing measure that you're just these are the things that the world longs for to just be a good person and they're found in god and god alone because his holy spirit fills us and renews us it costs everything but you get to you gain everything on the flip side we have money money is going to take your time money's going to take your energy it's going to take your skills but it's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to take your marriage because you're going to spend so much time. There's never, when you pursue, decide to serve money, there's never enough. It's going to kill your marriage. It's going to kill your family. It's going to, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill your friendships because it takes and takes and takes and all it ever gives back is more money. And at the end of the day, when we die and we enter into eternity, you have lost everything of value and the only thing that you have, you can't take with you. When we follow God, when we get to the end, we may not have a whole bunch of wealth by world standards, but we'll be wealthy in so many other ways and all of it comes with us. Because our family comes with us. Our that, those spiritual gifts, they come with us. Everything we paid forward is an eternity waiting for us. We choose God, we lose nothing at the end of the day. We choose money, we lose everything. Everything. And so God's, so Jesus stands before his disciples. And he's acknowledging that many of them are poor. He's acknowledging that many of them cannot make ends meet. And I'm sure that some of us feel the exact same way. And he stands before them and he says, today you need to choose. And for those of you that don't read the NLT, right? Some of you that read a different translation. It says mammon. Do you know what the literal word for mammon is? Mammon literally means trusted thing. And in Job 31, he says it's a dangerous game when we start calling money our, the thing that we put our trust in. Oh, I did put it up. Look at this. Look what Job says. He says, Have I put trust in money or felt secure because of my gold? Have I gloated about my wealth and all that I own? Have I looked at the sun shining in the skies or the moon walking down its silver pathway? 
and been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them and worship. He's connecting money to idolatry, the worship of idols. He says this, if so, I should be punished by the judges. For it would mean I had denied the God of heaven. You don't get both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Hey, dude, is that the cue? Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Today, choose for yourself. And it's interesting as I was reading through this, I'm going to close with this. <laughs> In school, I heard about a thing called um, Pascal's Wager. And for those of you that um, are looking for ways to share your faith with your friends, share your faith with your neighbors, um, this is probably one of the best tools I've ever used. You've got to use it wisely. You can't just throw it at everybody because, you, you know, there's got to be the right time. You've got to feel it out. But it was come up by a French philosopher, Blase Pascal, and he was vehemently opposed to God all of his life. But as he got further into his studies and he got later on in life, he came to this realization that, uh, that God was really the only option. And I found this quote. I was going to give you Pastor Matt's version. I found the quote. It's way quicker, and uh, it'll be easier for you to remember. This is the simplified version, but this is what he said. He said, how can anyone lose who chooses to become a Christian? If when he dies, there turns out to be no God and his faith was in vain, he has lost nothing. In fact, he has been happier in life than his non-believing friends. If, however, there is a God and heaven and hell, then he has gained heaven and his skeptical friends will have lost everything in hell. <gasps> I said the H word twice in church. Oh my goodness. But this is the gamble that every one of us takes. He says it again. Belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? If you gain, if you bet right, you gain it all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that God exists. Because the other option, like I've said multiple times this morning, it'll cost you everything. I got the worship team to come on up. I invite everyone else to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to pray. And as I say every Sunday, when it comes to this part of the, of the service, you're not expected to stand and sing with us. What we ask is that you respond. Whether you quiet yourself and allow the Spirit to speak to you, to impress upon you, to just talk to God about what's going on, if you want to stand and sing, you're more than welcome to worship the God above who is completely worthy of all of our worship. 
But don't go through the motions. Respond in a way that is appropriate to what God is doing in your life. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Holy Spirit. Speak to us on this whole idea of money because it can be such a trap. It so easily entangles. It so easily steers our attention away from you. God, we want a biblical perspective of money. We want a biblical perspective of our treasures, God. Whatever it is that we value, whatever it is that we are tempted to hoard and build up and hold on to. We want to honor you above all else. So Spirit, speak to us. Reveal in us any way that we have put money before you. Reveal in us any way that our eye may be going bad. Reveal in us any time that we have been putting money above you. And God, stir our hearts so that we would completely commit to following you in everything that we do, especially in this realm of our treasures. God, help us choose you and reap the benefits, live the life that is found in you and you alone. Pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.